Welcome to the YA Cafe, where we share conversations about books for teachers, readers, and caffeine addicts everywhere. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Salt by Hannah Moskowitz. Grab a mug of your favorite beverage, friends, and let's talk books. Welcome, y'all. As always, our first segment will be spoiler-free, and so you can stick around even if you haven't checked out the new novel yet. I'm Amanda Thrasher. And I'm Danielle Hall, an 8th and ninth grade English teacher, and I blog at teachnouvelle.com. Monster hunting on a wide ocean is all that Indy knows, and he knows that he hates it. When his parents vanish on a long hunt, his older sister takes control of the family, leading Indy and his two younger siblings to continue the fight. Indy has to choose between the siblings he loves desperately and a life of peace on land that feels like all he's ever wanted. All right, Amanda, I have a burning question. I'm ready. This book takes place on a boat. How did you feel about that boat? Did you feel like you were on a boat? I did. I think that a big advantage that this book had versus the other boat books that we have read was that Indy really hates it a lot. So (laughs) he does things like complain about the waves and the salt everywhere and everything being wet. And I think that really made it feel more like being on a boat than like, ah, the hearty seas of adventure. Like, (laughs) you know, being on a boat sucks sometimes and... Yeah, and Hannah writes that everything is wet except your skin, which is always dry. It's so real. (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine it's a bit like how when we lived in Florida, everything we had was slightly sandy all the time. Yep. Except that it's salt and it's the most corrosive thing. And so I really liked that it was this continuous annoyance in Indy's life that never goes away. All right, so... You and I both come into this book with a lot of Hannah Moskowitz baggage, but like baggage in the best sense. There has to be a better word than baggage, right? It's literary baggage. Like, (laughs) I I don't mean like emotional baggage. I mean that literary baggage. And we all know that literary baggage is wonderful. And it's like coming home from a candy store full of bags of books. Candy books. Candy books. Yes. So I am friends with Hannah and have been for a long time. Uh, But more than that, we have read most of her books and Really, really like her writing style. And if you have read anything else by Hannah Moskowitz and like it, you're probably going to like Salt. Yeah, and I always tell my students about Hannah because she got her first book published very early. 17, I think? Yeah, and so, you know, if she got her book published at 17, she was writing it long before that. I think it's definitely like an awesome inspirational story of a young woman who's getting it done before the age of 25 or whatever. So I did want to like talk about some of her awesome titles and this is like things we like a lot a latte kind of to start us off Invincible Summer we both read and loved. And I think Invincible Summer shares a lot of its DNA with this book in that it's a very complicated sibling relationship um, and very connected to the ocean but in a very different way like it's this beach house that they come back to every year but that family relationship is always like a really common thread in her books. And, you know, there's trauma in Invincible Summer, there's trauma in Salt, and another book that I felt this shared some DNA with was History of Glitter and Blood, which is like a gritty book, except that instead of Salt, it's like fairy specs. I love that book so much. Me too. It's so good. And then another one that is a lot like this is Teeth and the like darker side of the ocean's magic sort of thing. And I think that it's really nice to have an author who is willing to have such raw writing 
yes. for really weird things. And I will say that we saw Hannah last weekend at a wedding and I asked her about this book and she said that she viewed it as a companion to teeth. Oh, I didn't hear that conversation. That's cool. Yeah. And so definitely like not, you must have read teeth to understand salt, but she knows that they share DNA. It was intentional. It was the dark side of the ocean thing that you said. And, you know, they both have some magic in them and some monsters and of course, siblings. Yeah. I also think that if we're saying teeth in this strong way, it's important to mention that Teeth is a really dark book. Like there's a lot of abuse in the book and a lot of like disturbing imagery that could be difficult for a lot of people, but it's still a great book and very worth reading. And while we're on the topic of hard books, I have to say that Salt was a lot lighter than I thought it would be. It was actually pretty light in a lot of ways. Not in a frivolous sort of way. But yeah. When I think of Hannah, I think of somebody who writes gritty, raw, real trauma and drama, and Salt may have been gritty and raw and real, but it had nothing on teeth in terms of that. True. But <laughs> I, I thought it was really great. Okay, so we have danced around the idea of sibling relationships. Let's just outline the sibling relationships that exist in this book. We have Indy. He's our narrator. And he is the second oldest child. His older sister is Beleza. And she is sort of taking charge of the family after their parents go missing. And then their slightly younger brother is Oscar, who is, you know, a 13-year-old terrible boy. And then the youngest is Zulu, and she's six. But, like, one of the first things that we see her do is butcher a sea monster after they've killed it. It's her job. She's got to get in there. <laughs> so there's definitely some questions about the place in monster hunting that these younger siblings have but like at the same time it is their job i really loved with all these siblings here i feel like sometimes it gets overlooked that like each combination of siblings has a different relationship but you really see that here like zulu and oscar get on each other's nerves bella and indy see each other as kind of like the captain and first mate but in a very weird sort of dynamic and i really like how every character has their own relationship with indy and their own relationship with each other yeah me too so they all feel real as siblings and they all have different relationships with each other and they all have different relationships to monster hunting so they are called sicarios, which is the word for hunter in the Spanish lore. Like it's not the Spanish word for hunter, but it's like in real Spanish lore or in just in the book. I think it's just in the book. Oh, I don't know. We should have Googled it. Update. We Googled it <laughs> through the magic of editing and it means hitman or hired killer, which is very <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> so they're the monster hitmen, hit family. Witchers, they're witchers. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so I feel like in the last 30 seconds, we have exposed some pop culture DNA shared with this book. Supernatural. So much supernatural. Yeah. Like, if you go online and just read, like, the top line of all these good reviews, most of them are like, supernatural, but on the ocean. <laughs> it's very common. Yes. But, like, done with love. So while it is true that the description of it sounds very supernaturally, I think that the actual story here is not so much monster hunting as finding your place in a family, and it's a very small family story, not so much like a monster hunting story. 
Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, like, every compelling novel is like a story that transcends its blurb. Yeah, but I mean, even even more than that, I think that like the care and attention that is given to the descriptions of different actions, it's not the monster fighting. Those tend to happen in kind of a blur. It's the moments where Oscar is sick and falls asleep, like curled next to Zulu. Like, that's where the care is for both, I assume, the writer and the reader. Like, that's what the book is built around. Those moments, not the monster hunting moments. Right. You know, what compels us about monster literature is how the humans react to the monsters, not really the monsters themselves. I could be off base, but like Buffy is a great show because of her relationship with her friends and like her relationship with her mentors. Yeah, but I think that in all of those things, like the monsters feel a lot more present than in this book because like the monsters, particularly in Buffy, are a super big allegory for whatever Buffy has going on at the moment, you know? Right. It still feels like the story is about Buffy fighting monsters. It's just that the monster is like the stand-in for the Teenage looming drama, specter yeah. of adulthood or whatever. Okay. We can just agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> but it's true that the monsters do not feel very allegorical in salt. So we talked about the sibling relationship and how they have different relationships with each other. They also have different relationships to monster hunting. Our narrator is Indy and he hates it. So much. Belesa sees it as her duty because she wants to figure out what happened to her parents and, you know, revenge for their possible deaths or to get them back if they're not dead. Um, so she's kind of going through that by the route of killing things. Oh, so in that sense, the monsters kind of are a symbol for her anger. And then Oscar is like strangely pro at this whole thing, even though he's, you know, 12 going on 13. Indy says, Oscar is a real sick at heart, like Sicario. Oscar is a real sick at heart. Always will be. He's got salt for blood. Nice little title drop there. There's a lot of title drops in this book. It's the word salt. That's the advantage of having a one word <laughs> title. <laughs> no, but I think that this is like it. This is like this the, is the one. This is the title moment. Salt for blood. And with that, friends, we'll take our first break. When we come back, we'll share about things we like a latte. Then we'll return to our discussion of salt and dig a little deeper. Hi, friends. Are you sitting there thinking, this podcast is amazing? Well, here's how to support us and our authors. Pre-order our book choices through our Amazon affiliate links. We'll get a small kickback and pre-orders count towards the author's first week totals. Everybody wins. Next week, we're going to discuss Empress of All Seasons by Emiko Jean. If you'd like to help us keep bringing you great content, pre-order through the link in our show notes. Happy reading! Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Things We Like a Latte. Danielle, what's your brew of choice this week? Well, Amanda. Well, Danielle. <laughs> so we've been watching Adam Ruins Everything, which is now on Netflix. And this was, of course, a show that you introduced me to. But being able to watch more of it, and especially having Adam ruin 
like as opposed to an eight minute YouTube video, which is one of the segments, we now get the entire episode, which is three, you know, seven to eight minute segments about one central thing like Adam ruins bathrooms or Adam ruins airports or Adam ruins cars. And I really like this show because it is kind of a thoughtful critique on the systems that we have in place and the habits that we have as a society and as a culture. And it's still funny. Yeah, I think it's a great show. One episode specifically that I would like to shout out is the Adam Ruins Immigration. It is really great. It's a great primer on like how our current immigration system is super broken. And uh, spoiler alert, the wall is not going to help. So <laughs> it's really excellent. I recommend it. And to show it to all your friends who are like, Mrr, we got to build the wall. They're probably not great friends with you. but Or all of your friends that are like, airport security keeps us safe (laughs) that's what friends sound like how about you amanda what's your brew of choice this week i just read a book that is so good it is called what you are getting wrong about appalachia by elizabeth kate and she just deconstructs this whole idea that appalachia is singularly white that it's singularly poor that they consistently like vote against their own interests and all these kinds of things. And she talks a lot about the history of really radical labor union work that has happened in Appalachia for hundreds of years. And I just really, really loved this book. I thought it was great, especially anybody who has read Hillbilly Elegy should definitely read this book. What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia by Elizabeth Kate. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll return to our discussion on salt. The rest of the show will contain spoilers, so if you're leaving us here, keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'll be back. Welcome back, y'all, to the YA Cafe. We're continuing our discussion on salt. If you haven't read this yet, we want to warn you again that this segment will contain spoilers. Spoilers! And pirates! She was so mad after Ladies' Guide that she didn't say and pirates because there were pirates. But there are pirates in this book. True facts. Just one. Just the one, though. So in this book, we have a pirate, Hura, and Indy meets Hura like when they arrive... Somewhere, it doesn't matter. Basically, he sees her the first time. He feels a connection, not like a love connection, but like a, hey, someone else my own age who is in this very strange life. And Hera seems to know about the monsters, and everything goes well until she robs them blind. She does. And it was a really cool moment. I liked the added tension that put between Indy and Bella. Yeah, like it was Indy's fault a pirate robbed them. Because he's, like, the one that made the connection with Hura or whatever. And so Beleza was like, uh-huh, it's your fault. But really, I, th- I think the, the point here was not that he opened the door and let it happen, but how they handled that stress together. Right. And, like, while we're here talking about Hura, who I thought was a great character, my favorite part of this novel, like, she helped them fight the monster at the end and da 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 and she like really put her life on the line and then the next morning she had robbed them again that was enjoyable i love that she robbed them 
after fighting the big bad. She's staying in character, you know? Yeah, like, I love that she didn't, like, turn around and be a reformed pirate. Like, nope, she's still gonna get it done. Yeah, I liked that, too, especially after the fight, because I thought that that final fight was probably the weakest part of the novel for me. Like, with the, the big monster that they had been hunting, and then, like, it was hard to tell what was going on. I don't know if you felt that also. Yeah, but, I mean, I... I don't know. I didn't care. Like we were talking about in the first half, you're there for the family, so it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Indy shows up to save them. Yeah, no, I agree that that is what matters more. I just, uh, you know, I like I like seeing the fights sometimes. I felt like we didn't quite see how it all ended. Yeah. I was super psyched. One of the reasons in the first half that I said that this book was not as dark as some of her other books like, I expected a kid to die. Didn't know if it was going to be Oscar or Zulu, but, like, I expected someone to die. I would have been real bad sad if Zulu died. So that's why I thought that Hannah would kill Zulu. Like, Hannah is a breaker of chains and a breaker of hearts. But not this time. Not this time. No one died. They get to go play soccer at the end. Yeah. So I guess it's not fair to say, like, no one died. They do discover that their parents are legit dead. And I liked that, too, that their parents died in a very mundane way. Yeah, I really like the trope where their lives are so supernatural and they face these dangers every day. And then it's something really mundane that takes them down. Yeah, they just like ran aground or something, right? Yeah. See, this is why we need good Coast Guards. (laughs) That's the takeaway from this novel. That's the whole thing. So one of the things that... I really wanted to talk about that we didn't get to in the first section. There's a really good use of language in this novel. Yes, I knew you were going to love that. Yeah. Like, so I think that Hannah really went a long way in conceptualizing what these kids' lives would really look like if they had been raised on the open sea by parents who were often absent, like on missions or whatever. And so Beleza, she had two years on land. They put a lot of work into schooling her and teaching her, like, you know, a whole language. And the rest of the kids sort of speak a mix of Spanish and Portuguese and a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Turkish. And there's this great moment when they're in Ukraine and they need to get a book. And the book is in English because they don't speak Ukrainian. They don't speak English, so they have to buy a Spanish-English dictionary so that they can at least get to something that they know a little bit of to get to English to understand the Ukrainian guidebook. Like, I love it. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. I mean, and Indy feels like a lot of burden placed on him to educate Oscar and Zulu. Um, He feels like Beleza, even though she's making all the decisions, doesn't really value their education or a future in which they are not monster hunters. I think that's the key of it. Like that is why Indy wants them to be educated. So they have this choice. Whereas Beleza doesn't care if they have the choice in her mind. There isn't a choice. This is what we do. Absolutely. And you know, Indy feels like he's the glue in his family. He says, I'm sick of the significance and the rhythm and the pacing of everything. Sick of having to steer my thoughts and my family like a sail. Like he feels that if it were up to Beleza, they would be adrift. I think that all of Indy's opinion with that made it more heartbreaking when he does 
decide to leave the family and like stay on land and Oscar and Zulu just kind of roll with it. He assumed that they would come with him. Come with him or at the very least be utterly heartbroken and distraught. But they're both like, fine, you do you then. And I think that's uh, that's really hard because all of us probably inflate our own importance in whatever family or tribe or thing we're in. And it's sort of like the opposite of It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, and I think that it's also like it's a really interesting writing move strategically because like is it really enough of an obstacle or enough of a sacrifice for Indy to leave the water if his two younger siblings come with him? No, I think he really had to like make the choice despite leaving them too. Because he was at odds with Beleza, so like he obviously didn't anticipate her dropping the quest for revenge or whatever. Right. But it still would have been a sacrifice even if he had just had to leave Beleza. Like, they, we don't see it as much in the novel, but he references a lot how close he and Beleza used to be. Like, they were the two who grew up together getting left behind by their parents and they're pretty close to the same age so they were already very close yeah and he mentions the codependency one of the things i really like about hannah's writing is that mental health is always present in such a careful way like it's not always like the plot or it's not always the goal or the moral of the story but it's always there and it's something that is very real for the characters. And so like Indy knows that he has this codependency and he, he does miss how they were before their parents died. He recognizes that if he, you know, does walk away and then afterwards reflects when he did walk away, that he's like suffering because that's his day-to-day world is so wrapped up in these people and he does not know who he is outside of them. Yeah, I definitely agree. So the end of the book winds up with them finding their parents' treasure after they're like adrift at sea because Hura has robbed them again. Every good monster book has a treasure, right? Well, at the very least, every good piratey book or seafaring book, right? Yeah. So we have a treasure. There's a treasure. And that's actually what killed their parents was trying to go find this treasure. Uh, How did you feel about that? How that played out? So the treasure ends up being like this property on an island. Like, just a little house on an island with a few people. And it was precious. Like It was very sweet. Like, the thing that I thought was funny about that is that their parents had definitely, like, played up, like, oh, you have a treasure waiting for you. And, of course, if you say that to kids, like, they're going to imagine, like, gold, yeah, (laughs) and jewels and, like, bounty. But a true treasure is a home and people to share it with. Yeah, I thought it was really sweet. It was very sweet for the end of this novel. But saccharine. I mean, I'm not going to say it was saccharine. It was a little on the edge, though. Like, somewhere in between the sweet and saccharine spectrum. Yeah, overall, I really liked this book. I thought it was a fun read. I think it fits very well in the Hannah Moskowitz section of our library. It's a pretty big section at this point, so... Yeah, and so you should definitely check out this book and then go back and check out Hannah's other titles. That's our show for today, friends. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at YA Cafe Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Happy reading!